following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Yeah, thanks, Reuben. Thank you for um, for inviting me and uh, and entrusting to me the task of preaching on Judges chapter nineteen and twenty. Um, commonly known as one of the great texts of terrors in the, in the Old Testament. Um, I don't know, I'd love to have a show of hands. Has anyone ever heard a sermon on Judges chapter 19 and 20 before? Hands up if you have heard a sermon on this passage. Not a hand. I, I'm not surprised. Um, and I, um, I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever preach again on this passage. But thank you, Reuben. Um, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. Um, Let's, um, let, me, let, me, let me start by just reflecting with you a little bit. Is this go as high as it can? Um, reflecting with you a little bit on, a, on, a, on another story that we've had um, very much um, in our minds, I suspect, over the last week or two. It's a story about, a shocking story too, about a bunch of West Auckland teenagers who um, have allegedly been stupefying young girls with alcohol before sexually violating them, raping them, and then boasting about their, their sexual exploits on Facebook. Um, this bunch of 16, 17-year-old boys calling themselves the Roastbusters gang do this apparently for recreation, for fun. Roasting, humiliating, publicly desecrating the names of, of some girls that are as young as 13 years of age. Can you imagine that? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a parent, can you imagine your 13-year-old girl being subjected to that? It's raised a lot of questions for us as a society, I reckon. Um, there's been, understandably, a massive public outcry. Uh, this last week, there was an online petition um, calling for John Key to, to do something to, to, to call these people to account. Um, 100,000 people have signed that petition in a week. And then, of course, yesterday, if you were watching the news last night, there's been these series of public rallies right across the country in six of our major cities, hundreds, thousands of people in some cases marching down the streets, protesting against what they call New Zealand's gang rape culture. And then, of course, there's been the social commentators who have been sort of wringing their hands in, 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 in agony and and confusion, asking themselves the question, how is it that in God's own country, as it, we have called ourselves ever since the time of Dick Seddon, the premier back in the, the turn of the 20th century, how is it that God's own country could end up in this state of affairs at this point? I don't know if you read the paper yesterday, but um, there's a columnist called Paul Thomas who asked this very question, and he said, how is it that, I mean, what, what is shaping people's attitudes to sex? Because clearly, this is not an isolated incident. A 27-year-old was, was this year, uh, was this week, arrested for raping an 87-year-old woman. She was going out to get the, the letters from her letterbox in the middle of the day, down in Hamilton, I think it was, and uh, in broad daylight, he grabbed her, dragged her into her house, and violated her. She was found in a distressed state hours later in the evening by a family member. I mean, this is happening in the newspapers all the time. 
What's, what's causing this? Well, Paul Thomas, in his column that I read yesterday, he, he, he asked the question, is it the clothes that young girls wear these days? Oh, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think John Tamahiri would, would agree with that now. I mean, is it, is it the antics, Paul Thomas asked, of highly sexualized pop stars like Miley Cyrus or Lady Gaga? Is that what's causing people to act like this towards young women? Or, Paul Thomas asked, is it the porn industry, the online porn industry? 88% of online porn material features physical violence, apparently, according to a study recently done in Australia. And the majority of that is violence against women. And that the age at which the average young person first encounters and watches porn online, the, re the, the research says, is about eight, nine, 10, 11 years of age. And people that watch porn, little children that see that, the research says they think that's how it's meant to be. I mean, is that the cause of, of the problems that we're confronted with when we read stories like the Roastbusters gang exploits? Well, this morning I wanna look at another story, equally gruesome and shocking, and it asks us lots of questions as well, not just about us as a society, but about us as a church, and it's, it really is a difficult story, so bear with me. We're going to walk our way through it, and, and, and at the end, try and, and discern what God might be saying to us through it. If you have a Bible, um, you'll find the story is in Judges chapter 19, Judges chapter 19, and let's pray again, shall we, um, given the material. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word inspired and authoritative, a word that gives life, even as it sometimes slays us in order to give life. And we ask that as we reflect on the story, as we listen to your word, may it truly be your word to us, a word that gives life, even as you, you convict. Would you afflict the comfortable amongst us, would you comfort the afflicted? And would this be a word of life and hope? Amen. Well, Judges chapter 19, this is how it starts. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. So this story starts with a double shock. Um, first of all, the Levites, you probably will recall from a week or two ago, were a tribe in Israel that had been set apart to teach the people of Israel about God and to help them to worship God and obey His law. And so here you have a Levite, at the beginning of the story, flagrantly defying that law, practicing a, a pagan custom, taking for himself a concubine. And in the ancient Near East, the concubine was like a second-class wife, um, a kept mistress, 
someone who would live with her husband, but she was more a sex object than anything else. She had none of the legal rights of a, of a full wife in, in, under the law. So this is the situation that we have. And the second shock in the story, immediately, right in these first few verses, is that this concubine decides to leave her husband and go back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, in Judah. Now, in those days, to leave a marriage, even a second-class marriage, was considered enormously bad form. I mean, it brought, um, in a shame culture, where shame was everything, it brought disgrace on you and on your family. The text doesn't say why she leaves, but reading between the lines, it's pretty clear that this relationship is anything but sweet and harmonious and loving and healthy. I mean, the, this Levite waits four months before he goes to find her. I mean, he, he's obviously not that bothered about the fact that he's lost her, at least initially. And then after time, he thinks, oh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I wouldn't mind having her back. And so eventually, four months later, he goes to her parents' house, makes the trip, to get her back. And um, the father of the concubine, when he sees this man, what does he do? Welcomes him gladly. And the text goes on to say, if you were to read it, that for the next five days, he throws something of a stag party for this guy. It's, it's, he wines and dines him for five full days. And at the end of those five days, on the, on the, late on the fifth day, the Levite, with his manservant that he's brought with him, with his concubine in tow, heads off up north to the town where he lives. Now, the text seems to suggest that the concubine's father willingly gives his daughter over to this man again. There's nothing at all to suggest that she has any decision, any role to play in this outcome. He doesn't consult her. She is just sent back. Why would this man, this father, treat his daughter like this? I think the text suggests, and the culture would suggest, that he wants to avoid the, the public shame and disgrace and humiliation that the rupture of this relationship has brought on him and his family. And the Levite, for his part, he wants to have his sex object back, presumably. And so just like the thousands of Indian, poor Indian fathers in towns like Mushidabad in India today who sell their daughters into the slave trade, the sex trade, so that they can feed the rest of their family. I mean, just like the, the music video producers, I mean, the producer who made Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, now a notorious music video, just like these men, the men in this story, this Levite, this woman's father treat this woman as though she is just an object, a commodity. And she is sent back with uh, the Levite. It's interesting. This is, this is a really sad start to what will be a, a really sad story. But it's interesting, even at this point here, no one is named. Have you noticed that? No one is given a name. There's a Levite, there's a concubine, and there's her father. Throughout the rest of the book of Judges, everyone is given a name whenever it's a significant episode, a significant narrative. But here, no one has a name. The, the story writer, the narrator, seems to be suggesting to us, these people, this man, this woman, they're typical of men and women in Israel at this time, in the time of the Judges. So this Levite, this is how Levites lived. 
This father, this is how fathers acted. This woman, this is how women were treated in the time of the judges. It's a sad picture, and it gets sadder. The day's almost over. They're making their way north, the small traveling party, and they reach the Canaanite city of Jabus, which subsequently became known as Jerusalem. But it's, it's, it's a Canaanite fortress still. The people of Israel have not been faithful to God. They haven't uh, cleansed the land as God had asked them to. And that's another story. And there are groups, pockets of people that have been left behind in Israel, um, pagan people, foreigners who, who don't worship and certainly don't live according to the, the law of the God of Israel. And so um, when this concubine servant says, well, master, it's getting late. Should we just stay here for the night? You see in the text, the, concub- the, the, um, the Levite says, this is a Canaanite town. I mean, these are not Israelites here. I don't know whether we'll be safe here. Let's press on. Let's go on to Gibeah. Gibeah is, is an Israelite town. It's in the, the territory of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. We'll be safe there. And so on they go. And sa- the sun is setting. Night is falling, and they just make their way through the, the, uh, the town gate. They get into the town square of this, of this little city, and, um, you know, they've got their, their Kathmandu backpack with them, and, uh, you know, their, their, maybe their sleeping bag roll up, and, you know, the, their polar fleece wrapped up around their neck. They're clearly travelers. No one recognizes them, but no one talks to them. I mean, night is falling, and no one invites them in to, to give them accommodation for the evening, for the night. Now, this is an appalling breach of social etiquette. In the ancient Near East, in the the contemporary Near East, no one treats travelers and strangers like that. I remember once after after I'd finished my my university studies as a young 21, 22-year-old, I decided I would cycle from, from the south of Auckland down through the Waikato, around the Bay of Plenty, and then up right round the East Cape of the North Island, down to Gisborne. The plan was to do that and back to Auckland in seven days. I got to Gisborne in five days and rang up my parents who came and rescued me. That's another story. But, but I thought it would be fun to do something like this, on my own solo. It wasn't fun. I hated it. It was, it was deplorable. 120 k's, 130 k's every day, on your own, on a clunky mountain bike with heavy panniers. My butt ached you know, appallingly, I, I, I hated it, every kilometer of it after the first day. And I remember on the second to last day, I pushed an extra long leg of about 150k to try and get to a hostel just out of Ruatoria for my final thrust through to Gisborne the next day. And night was falling. I got to this hostel. I got off my, ch- off my, off my bike. I made my way up the stairs, <laughs> knocked on the door. This lady opened the door. She looked grim-faced, not at all hospitable. She said, what do you want? I said, I, um, is this a hostel? Yes. Can I stay the night? No. And she shut the door in my face. That was it. That was it. It was devastating. Well, I imagine that the Levite here and the concubine and the servant feel equally devastated, distraught. Wonderfully, someone comes and speaks to them. And it's an old man. It's, um, it's not a Benjamite. It's not a local and that's significant. It's a man from up north, from Ephraim, from the, the northern region of Israel. And when the man talks to the Levite and discovers that the Levite also is from up there and is heading up there, he says, come into my place. Stay with me for the night. Whatever you do, don't spend the night 
in the square. Now, why wouldn't you spend the night in the square? I mean, it would be cold, but this is not a Canaanite town. This is an Israelite town, right? These are are God's people. What's the danger? Well, the danger soon emerges. Verse 22 in the text says this. Take a look at this. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounded on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. This is a rape. This is gang rape. This is Roastbusters material. Bravely, the old man goes out to them, and this is what he says. Don't be so vile. This man is my guest. I'm his host. Don't do such a terrible, despicable thing. Bravo. And then the old man does a terrible, despicable thing. If you know the story, he says to this mob of, of, of Gibeonites, look, I've got a virgin daughter in the house, and, and, and this traveler has, has a concubine wife with him. Let me bring out these two women to you. And this is what he says, you can do with them whatever you will. You can use them, and you can do with them whatever pleases you, whatever literally seems good in your eyes to do. Now, why would he do that? I mean, at the very least, why wouldn't he have said, look, this Levite who I'm looking after, he's my host, uh, he's, my, he's my guest, he's got a male servant, you can have him. Because clearly this, this mob of, of, of men want sex with a, a man, with a male, so why doesn't he offer the servant? Why his own virgin daughter and this poor concubine? Any ideas? Well, just like the Levite, just like the concubine's father, this old man, for some reason, sees women as being somehow second class. Objects, things, property, they're expendable. They're not as valuable as men. Now, if you, if you know the beginning of the story of the people of God, right back in Genesis, at the beginning of, of the Israelite scriptures, God made it very clear to his people, I have created man and woman in my image. They are both equally precious to me. Clearly, what's happened is is the Canaanite view, the Canaanite culture had a very different perspective on on women, and that has started to seep into the people of Israel. These pockets of Canaanites all around them are affecting the Israelites, and they've absorbed their view of of women, of the fairer sex. And and I wonder if we do so today as well, actually. Um, I was... A few weeks ago, I had uh, a student come into my office at Kerry, a theological student, studying the Bible, knows all the theory. He's a lovely guy, and he really, he's got a deep love for people. He really wants to serve God and to serve God's people in Christian leadership. And he came and sat down on, on the couch in my office, and we started talking. It was small talk, and it was quite obvious to me that he, he wanted to say something, and he needed to get it out. And eventually, the conversation changed gears, He went very serious, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, I need to tell you something. I struggle with porn. I'm I'm addicted to it. It's it's got its claws in me. I'm enslaved by it, and I I need help. He's not the first young man at Kerry that's come into my office and said that. I couldn't tell you how many people struggle with that in my experience. I couldn't tell you how many people in the church struggle with it, it, and it distorts our view of 
of those people who we objectify. Culture can triumph faith, and it happens in the people of Israel. It happens in the story. When you think about the story up to this point, does it remind you of anything? Does this episode ring any bells for you? I mean, there's another story, another quite famous story in, in, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 19, where some similar things happen. Some strangers come and visit a city. They're taken in by, by someone, a man who hosts them. Other men from the town, from the city, surround the house and start to shout out, send out those men so we can have sex with them. And the man goes out, the host, and says, don't do such a terrible thing. Here, have, have my two virgin daughters. Have these two women instead. Do you know the story? Do you know the town? Can anyone tell me? It's the town of Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the blackest hellhole in the history of the Bible. I mean, that's the pagan town that God ultimately ends up destroying because their sin is so evil and so grievous to him. So did you see what's happening here? I mean, the, the clear message when you think about those resonances, the parallels between this story and the Sodom story, God's saying, the narrator is saying, the people of Israel are no better than Sodom. In spite of all that God has given them, in spite of all that God has done for the people of Israel, they have become like Sodom. And they have, because the story goes on to say that when the mob refused to listen to the old man, the Levite steps up. He goes out, and this is what he does. Verse 25, he takes his concubine, this good, upstanding, religious member of the Israelite community, takes his concubine and sends her outside to the mob. And then with this incredible brevity, three verbs, the narrator tells us, they raped her, they abused her, and they discarded her. In the morning, they just let her go. The woman staggers back to the house where they're staying. She collapses on the threshold of the doorway. It would seem that she's, she doesn't even, doesn't even have the strength to knock on the door to scream or to cry out. And she lies there till morning. And what happens next is absolutely chilling. Verse 27, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. So having tossed his concubine to this, this pack of dogs, the suggestion is that the Levite, once he's assured that he's protected himself, that he is physically safe for the night, he goes and lies down and has a good sleep. And then in the morning, having you know, knocked back his two pieces of ogles and his, and his double-shot espresso, he gets up to continue on his way, not to search for his wife, his lover, but to continue on his way, nonchalantly as though nothing has even happened. I mean, can anyone be this callous, this self-absorbed? I mean, is he really that self-absorbed? Well, yes, <laughs> because verse 28 says that he, he says to his concubine, lying there on the threshold, get up, let's go just like you'd speak to a, a dog or an animal of some description. And the narrator says, but there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And when he reached home, he took a knife, cut up his concubine, limb by limb, dismembered her into 12 parts 
and sent them into all the areas of Israel. So with this grisly gesture, the, the Levite here is summoning Israel to war. I mean, the Israelites are a federation of tribes bound together by a, a covenant sealed with blood. In the ancient world, a covenant was sealed by taking an animal and cutting it into pieces and invoking upon yourself a curse. If I break this covenant, may this be what happens to me. And so he is reminding them of their covenant. He's saying, this has happened in Israel. Something has got to, got to happen as a result. What are we going to do about it? And he's calling for vengeance, effectively, on the men of Gibeah. Not because of what they've done to his wife. He sent her out to them. But because of the way in which they deprived him of his property, I think. He wants vengeance. And so he, just as he used his concubine to, to save his own hide, he wants to use the, the sons of Israel, the armies of Israel, to get his own way with the people of Gibeah. And um, it says in chapter 20, we don't have time to go through it all, that, that all of Israel gathered together in a way unlike we read in anywhere else in the book of Judges. Israel is united as one person. 400,000 soldiers are mustered. It's a big army. And they say to the Levite, so tell us, how did this terrible thing happen? And this is what the Levite says. I was in a town in Gibeah. I was staying the night with my servant and a concubine. And the whole town surrounded the house where I was staying. Not just some wicked men. The whole town now. They all gathered and they wanted to kill me. Not they wanted to rape me, but they wanted to kill me. My life was, at thre was, was threatened, and I fought them off effectively, and I, and I managed to get away, and it was touch or go, but they got my concubine, and they raped her, and she died. Do you notice anything about his testimony there? I mean, he's just filed a, a, a slightly false report. I mean, the substance is there, but he's just managed to omit the little, somewhat minor fact that he had a little part to play in the death of this concubine that he was actually the one who shoved her out the door and slammed it shut in her face and allowed them to rape her. He's edited the truth for his own selfish purposes. He's, he's just finessed his story a little bit to make him look better. Can you imagine anyone doing that? I have to confess, I was talking to a colleague, a work colleague, the other day, and he mentioned in the course of this conversation a book that I have not read and that I, I perhaps should have read, given my particular sphere of interest but I felt too embarrassed to admit it. So we had the conversation and I just said enough to give him the indication without saying as much that I, I know what he's talking about. And then for some reason, he said, I mean, you've read the book. And I went, no, I haven't, to my embarrassment. We do it all the time, don't we? We finesse the truth like this Levite does. On hearing this report, the Israelites they, um, they rise up as one man, the text says, and they decide that they are, going to, they are going to punish the men of Gibeah for what they have done. And so they send some messengers to the tribe of Benjamin, within which Gibeah is located, and they, they have this demand. Hand over the rapists so that we can put them to death. We're going to execute them, and we're going to purge Israel of this evil. That's the right thing to do, isn't it? What do the men of Benjamin say? little tribe of Benjamin, one of the smallest tribes in Israel, says, stuff off. We'll deal with our people our way, thank you very much. They close ranks and they refuse to give up the men that committed this dastardly deed. Why do you think they do that? I mean, the, the Benjamites are facing war. They have to summon their own soldiers um, to, 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 res to, to, to resist the Israelite army if they would try and, and press this charge. They're outnumbered 15 to 1, the Benjamites. 
and yet they're prepared to force the issue and, 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 and force a civil war because they will not hand over their own land. Why? Why would they do that? I think it's called pride, a little syndrome that we, all, we know all so well. They, they, they don't want to be corrected. They don't want to give up their own. They, they close ranks. Um, John Ortberg tells a story about um, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and this, um, this wealthy, successful businessman was driving into a, a service station with his wife in the car to get some petrol, and he gets the petrol, goes in to pay, and he comes out, and, um, and he sees that his wife's in this animated conversation with the service station attendant, the person that filled up the car with petrol. And um, indeed, it's actually someone that his wife knows. In fact, it's, it's actually the guy that his wife went out with before she met him at school. And as they're driving away in the car afterwards, he says, I bet I know what you were thinking. You're thinking how, how grateful you are to be married to me, a Fortune 500 company CEO, and not that service station attendant. And she said, no, I'm actually thinking that if I was married to him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO and you'd be a service station attendant. <laughs> there is something in us that wants to exalt ourselves and that deeply resists being deflated or humbled or corrected. And the Benjamites are no different. They're no exception. They go to war. And the war is, is bloody and it's short. Uh, three days and Gibeah is taken. The battle is finished. But the slaughter is not. Because victory for Israel comes at a high price. 40,000 Israelite soldiers are left on the battlefield. And um, so after the war, it says in verse 48, and this is the last verse of this part of the story, it says there that in a vengeful and spiteful and vindictive act of retaliation, the Israelite army, the men of Israel, went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. Every single man, woman, and child in the tribe of Benjamin, except for 200 or 600 rogue soldiers that managed to escape from the battle, all the rest are slaughtered. This is not justice. This is genocide. I mean, this is, this is ethnic cleansing. Hey, this is Rwanda. This is the Congo today. Syria or Bosnia a few years ago. This is Israel in the time of the judges. And it raises a lot of questions for us, this shocking story. I mean, how do you respond to this story? At one level, I think this story calls us to, to mourn, just to, to grieve and mourn for the people of Israel, but ultimately for ourselves. Because this is a story about what society looks like when it's not centered on God. More than that, though, it's a story about the people of God, right? This is Israel. This is, this is our spiritual forebears. And in, in, in a sense, this is us. And this story reflects something of us. I mean, you think about it. What is there in this story? Oppression, rape, murder, deceit, a massacre, genocide. And all of this is, is caused by a bunch of Israelites. There are no pagans, no Canaanites involved here. Israel's got no one else to blame but themselves. Tim Keller says this about the story. All through the book of Judges, and nowhere more so than at the end of the book, Israel's worst enemy was Israel. And so often, sadly, the same is true of God's people today. 
don't know if you saw um, a news item a number of months ago now, reflecting on census data, the census results that we've had come through. And it pointed out that New Zealand is an increasingly unchristian country. The church in New Zealand is dying. Numerically, it is in decline. How do you, how do you respond to that kind of news? I mean, most of us say, well, we're not surprised. This is a tough time to be the church in New Zealand. Look at our culture. Look at the pluralism that we contend with, the consumerism that is rampant. You know, post-modernism, all the other isms, secular humanism. I mean, it's really hard to be the church right now. And we look out at our culture. But this story suggests that, that maybe we need to look in, too, at ourselves. When I read this story, in anticipation of, of, of sharing with you the, today, I made this list of questions. Let me read it to you. As we think through each one of the characters in this story, do you see yourself anywhere? This is what I reflected. Like the concubine's father, don't I sometimes treat people as objects to be used? Like the people of Gibeah, don't I sometimes fail to be hospitable to those in need? Like the old man in the story, haven't I sometimes failed by my inaction, as much as by my action, to prevent evil? Like the cowardly Levite, don't I sometimes tell others a better story about myself than uh, the truth would reveal? Like the men of Benjamin, aren't I sometimes guilty of pride, refusing to acknowledge my mistakes, but also favoritism, placing my nuclear family, my friends, over others? Like the Israelite army, aren't, aren't my actions some, sometimes, if I'm honest, directed more by a simmering, seething bitterness and resentment than I would want to admit? And like everyone in the story, haven't I sometimes allowed my actions and attitudes to be shaped more by our culture than by Scripture? You know, the story starts with a statement, if you remember. At that time in Israel, there was no king. Or, in those days, Israel had no king. And the story, which will end next week, I think, with Reuben, finishes that this, this, this whole episode is framed with a repeat phrase. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Don't we sometimes live as though we have no king? Don't we sometimes live and do whatever we think is right? We do as we see fit. What's right in our eyes. We are, I think, more rebellious and more depraved than we know. If this story has an ounce of truth to it. It's, the story calls us to mourn. We look at our society and we think, why is it so dark? Why is it so rotten? And the New Testament says to the church, look at yourselves. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are also the problem. But at a deeper level, and this is where I want us to linger and dwell, because of that reality about who we are as the people of God, this story calls us not just to mourn, but to rejoice. I mean, this picture is, is Israel during the time of the Judges. We've, we've read the story through Judges, this period of sort of decline and degeneration of, of Israelite society. As people live without a king, they do whatever they like, and God sends one judge after another to rescue his people. This is what Israel's like, the story says at the end. Here's a snapshot of what God was contending with. If the people of Israel were this self-absorbed and selfish and depraved, what does it tell us about God? Doesn't it just highlight the goodness and the grace of God, that again and again and again, he reaches down to these people and he rescues them with a judge. 
There's only one hero in the book of Judges, and it's God, of course. A God who, one commentator says, relentlessly offers His grace to His people who do not deserve it. And not just to people who do not deserve it, but to people who do not seek it, and to people who do not even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. We have a God who shows grace to the chief of sinners. His grace abounds to the chief of sinners. We have a God whose goodness will triumph over our most stupid mistakes. And we see it supremely in the way in which God ultimately sends to us the ultimate judge. Not a human judge only, who who inhabits our genetic heritage, our sinfulness, but one who was both divine and human, who could stand outside our situation in a way and reach in and rescue us. And instead of shoving us out the door because of our sin and slamming it in our face and leaving us to the, to, the, to the evil of our world. He's the perfect husband, in a way. And he lays himself down for his bride on a cross. We have a king, a true judge, who won't just and doesn't just purge the evil in our society, but he, does it, he purges it in our hearts. And as we're celebrated at communion, we see in the whole sweep of the story of Scripture a God who forgives sinners like us. Let's pray. Our loving and sovereign King and Savior, we thank you for the story as as dark and as bleak as it is because it shows us just how good and how gracious you are. Thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot disown yourself. You have bound yourself to us in an everlasting covenant. We are yours, and you love us, you delight in us, as sinful as we are, and one day you will restore us completely into your image. Lord, we confess to you this morning our sin. We acknowledge that in many ways we see something of ourselves in this this terrible story. Would you forgive us, and would you give us the grace to be your people, living in a way that shows the world around us what you are like. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.